0: Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast for Zion Stone United Church of Christ in Northampton, Pennsylvania. My name is Pastor Mike Landsman, and this podcast is taken from my weekly Sunday sermons. I pray that they'll be a blessing to you. And if you're ever in the area, please stop in and worship with us. We'd love to have you. This has always been a, a great service of the church in general. Palm Sunday, you know, it, it's a little bit of happiness and rejoicing before we get into the uh, the more, well, not the more serious, because it's all serious, right? But before we get into the deeper, maybe a little darker elements of the, the passion narrative as we go through through Holy Week, and it's funny, when I mentioned uh, Good Friday, one of the kids who's sitting up here said, well, more like Bad Friday. And I laughed and I said, well, yeah, kind of, in a way, it kind of is, uh, but but." Well, will more on that a little bit later, but before I get into the sermon, I'd just like to say that we have uh, some wonderful services coming up this week. Uh, on Thursday, we have, this is probably one of my favorite services to do, is we're going to have a tenebrae service on Thursday at 7 with uh, communion and uh, the, the ceremony of the, of the candles, so please come out to that Thursday at 7. It's a beautiful service, and uh, it's one of my favorites. And then Good Friday, our Good Friday service will be at 7 on, on Friday with the stripping of the altars. Uh, and then we have a sunrise service at 6 a.m. on uh, Easter Sunday, followed by our regular scheduled service at 10.15 on Easter Sunday. So please, as we go through Holy Week, uh, please um, come to those services. There's, they're just something very, they're smaller, they're usually a little bit more intimate, and the Lenten services that we had are good prep for that. And They're, just, they're smaller, the more intimate, and, and they're really lovely. So I'd just like to extend everybody an invitation to come to those uh, this week. So in this reading, this is, this is one of those stories where as a preacher, as a minister of the gospel, you think, how in the world can I, what, what, can, I, what, what can I preach on out of this text, right? Out of these two texts from the gospel of Mark and from the gospel of John, because it seems so straightforward, doesn't it? It does. Well, I, you might not think so, but I do. I, they, they, they seem just so straightforward. Okay. But you sit there and think, this is one of the stories that we hear over and over and over again every single year. Why do we have to go through this? Why do we have to have this service? Why are we talking about the Palm story? We all know the Palm Sunday story. Why do we have to preach on it? Why do we have to talk about it? I'm glad you asked that question, brothers and sisters, because that's what I'm going to try to do today. Jesus is drawing near to Jerusalem, right? Like, he's, he's, he, he's drawing near to complete, sort of, his, his mission. And I kind of wonder what, and this is one of the great things, brothers and sisters, that we can ask of the biblical text, is we can have some fun with it a little bit, right? And we can kind of put ourselves in people's shoes, because we're reading about real people in a real world with real experiences. And I kind of sit and wonder, what would it feel like to either be Jesus riding into Jerusalem at this point, right, or being one of his disciples. Like, I, I feel like if I were Jesus and I'm sitting and I'm writing in, I'm thinking to myself, okay, this is the beginning, you know. He knows who he is. He knows what he's there to do. It doesn't mitigate, I don't think, any apprehension he might be feeling because we know he does, right, because he goes to the garden and he says in the garden, Lord, if, if, if it's possible for this cup to pass from me, please, but not my will, your will be done and that heaviness and that weight that must have been upon him. And then you, you, you put yourself in the shoes of the disciples thinking, right, this is going to be great. Jesus is, is entering in triumph. Everyone's going to gather around us. This is going to be good. And Psalm 118, the psalm we open our call to worship with this Hosanna. The people are saying that blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Bless is the coming kingdom of our father David. And this is a prophecy, brothers and sisters, from the book of Ezekiel that says, they're at 37, 24 to 28. My servant David shall be king over them. They shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land I gave to my servant Jacob. Where your fathers lived, they and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. I will set them in their land and multiply them. I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place shall be with them. I will be their God. They will be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. So there's this expectation of this Davidic warrior king. We talked about that last year, and I know this because I looked in my notes, so I'm not going to talk too much about that. But they're putting their hope in Jesus as a conqueror, right? Because remember, the promise in Ezekiel is that God will dwell with them and the land will be theirs forever. No more struggle, no more cycle like we we read in Judges, no more back and forth, but God Himself will dwell among them. And I think we talked about this last week where God says, I will put my my, my law, I will not write it on tablets of stone, but I'm going to put it in your hearts, right? In your hearts something that we'll all know, that no one will have to be taught it because God will be with us. And so as Jesus walks and you have this expectation from his disciples, from the people thinking this is what's going to happen, this is about what's this is going to happen, this is the beginning of our restoration, this is the beginning of the land being fully ours, this is the beginning of the Romans being driven out, this is the beginning of our freedom. And so as Jesus walks in, the people spread their cloaks on the road. The disciples spread their cloaks on the donkey. They spread out the leafy branches, the palms in the way, and they're waving them. These are acts of joy, acts of honor. From a certain perspective, though, it might have seemed a little odd. Okay, have any of you ever studied or read up a little bit on Roman history? If you haven't, that's cool or any kind of, any history. How many history buffs in general do we have? Just shoot up your hand. Like how many history buffs? I know we have to have some history buffs in here, right? That read history, that know history. Well, I mean, we should because, right? Was it Santayana? If you forget, you'll, you'll repeat it. But in, the Romans and the ancient world had this thing called a triumph. Do you know what a triumph is? Right, so what would happen is when a Roman conqueror or a king conquered a territory or conquered a city, a military leader, they would be honored with this massive parade through the city. Okay, this is this is one everybody will know. <laughs> all right. Has anybody seen Gladiator, right, with Russell Crowe all those years ago? There's a scene, right, where the army comes back in, and uh, and the new emperor, he's there in his chariot. He's all dressed up, and he's standing there, and he's waving. If you've seen that movie, you kind of know what I'm talking about. He's coming through the middle of the city, and everybody in the city, they're cheering, they're yelling, they're like, yay, oh my gosh, you're so awesome, generals. That's called a triumph. A conquering figure is entering the city in a great show of glory and power. This, look at me, look at what I have done for your good, and look at the fate of anyone who would oppose us or oppose our rule. So it's this massive, massive, massive parade. So there's an ancient historian named Josephus. He wrote a a series of books called The Jewish Wars, which describe the war that happened after the events in the New Testament around AD 70 with the destruction of the temple. And he was there and he recorded it, and he recorded what happened afterwards. And so the Roman general, Titus, when he returned to Rome in 71, He was given one of these triumphs. And if if you're into architecture and art, you may have even seen they built an arch called the Arch of Titus. This was done in commemoration for his victory in Palestine. I'm going to read you a description of a Roman triumph, okay? It's a little bit long, so bear with me. But what I want you to do as I read this, I want you to kind of picture in your mind what we just did this morning with the kids and what we just read in the text about coats, and palms, and Jesus on a donkey. I want you to kind of, in your mind, have that in there as I read what a Roman triumph was. The whole military force had been laid out in companies and battalions by its officers, not as usual near the gates of the palaces on the Palatine, but near the Temple of Isis. For Titus and Vespasian spent the night there, and now as dawn began to break, they emerged crowned in laurel wreaths and wearing the time-honored purple clothes. It is impossible to do justice in the description of the number of things to be seen and to the magnificence of everything that met the eye, whether in skilled craftsmanship, staggering richness, or natural rarity, for almost all the remarkable and valuable objects which have ever been collected piece by piece by prosperous people were on that day massed together, affording a clear demonstration of the might of the Roman Empire. The quantities of silver, gold, and ivory worked into every conceivable form were not like those usually carried in a triumph, but resembled, as it were, a running river of wealth. Purple cloth of extreme rarity was carried along, some of it fashioned by Babylonian skill into pictorial representations. Translucent gems embedded in diadems or other objects were born in such profusion as to dispel any idea that they were rare. In charge of each part of the procession was a number of men in purple and gold costumes, while those selected for the triumph itself wore choice clothes of astonishing richness. Even the prisoners were worth seeing, no disordered mob, but the variety and beauty of their clothes diverted the eye from the disfigurement of their injuries. The greatest amazement was caused by the floats. They had floats back then. Their size gave grounds for alarm about their stability, for many were three or four stories high. They didn't have OSHA back then, right? And in the richness of their manufacturer, they they provided an astonishing and pleasurable sight. Many were covered in cloth of gold and worked gold or ivory was fixed on all of them. The war was divided into various aspects and represented in different ways, which gave a good indication of its character Pictures basically, right, of a fertile land being ravaged, here whole detachments of enemies being killed, others in flight, others being led off into captivity. Here were walls of colossal size being pounded down by siege engines. Here strong points being captured, and here well defended fortifications overwhelmed. On one float the army could be seen pouring inside the walls. Others showed defenseless men raising their hands in surrender firebrands being hurled at temples or building falling on their owner. On yet others were depicted rivers, which after the destruction and desolation flowed no longer through fields, providing water for men and cattle, but through a land on fire from end to end. It was to such miseries that the Jews subjected themselves by the war. Standing on his individual float was the commander of each of the captured cities, showing the way he had been taken prisoner. Spoil in abundance was carried past. None of it compared with that taken from the temple in Jerusalem a golden table, many stones in weights, and a golden lampstand similarly made, which was unlike any object in daily use. A center shaft rose from the base and from the shaft, thin branches or arms extended, and a pattern very like that of tridents each wrought at the end into a lamp. There were seven of these lamps thus emphasizing the honor paid by the Jews to the number seven. A tablet of the Jewish law was carried last of all after the spoil. After it came a large group carrying statutes of victory, all of them made of ivory and gold. The procession was completed by Vespasian and behind him Titus. Domitian rode on horseback wearing a beautiful uniform and on a mount that was wonderfully well worth seeing. Thank you for indulging me with that. That was a long description. Think of what you just heard described in that triumph as Titus rides into Rome, being celebrated by the people of Rome. He said that there were so many jewels in crowns and in diadems, there were so many of them that you wouldn't think that jewels and gems were rare. That means there's a lot, <laughs> right? He says there's so much gold and silver, he said it didn't look like they were just carrying it along, he said it looked like a river of wealth. He's talked about the floats being so big and having so many scenes uh, being reenacted on them or, or displayed in art on them that were, that were, that were a couple stories high and that the prisoners that they took were dressed in fine clothes, even though they were prisoners, and some of them were going to be led to slaughter um, right after that was over. Think of that. That is a triumph, brothers and sisters. That's what pops into our mind as a triumph, a military triumph. That's what a king does. That's how a king enters a city. That's how a king puts on a show. And what do we see today, brothers and sisters? We see the king, the one through whom St. Paul said all things were made, riding into a city on a donkey. No floats. No floats. No diadems. No jewels. No crowns. A couple of robes on the back of a donkey, clothes on the ground, and palm trees and branches. And that's how our king enters a city. That's how our king enters the city. Jesus is the opposite. He does not have an army behind him. He's got 12 guys, fishermen, Tax collectors. One of them was a zealot, who was one of the people who were fighting against Rome before he became a disciple of Jesus. He's got 12 guys, and depending on where in the in in the story we are with Jesus, he had 70 other disciples, many of whom left him. The people love and acclaim him; the leaders don't. He doesn't have an assortment of conquered slaves. He doesn't have a chariot or a war horse. He's on a donkey, and he's going to carry a cross. He's not wearing purple robes, though he will on the way to his death. His glory and his power as the Son of God are not on open display. Because, brothers and sisters, the cross and the resurrection, that's where he's going to show his glory and power. The might of Rome on display 30 years later might look superior. By any, by any natural description, right? We might think because of the gold and the jewel and the prisoners and the might and the power of imperial Rome that that was superior than a humble entrance into a city 30 years before that. But we would be wrong to think that, brothers and sisters. We would be wrong to think that. Because Jesus is entering into Jerusalem in a way like a conqueror because he does not conquer with weapons, right? He does not conquer with weapons. When his disciples use weapons, what does he tell them? He says, put them away. If you live by the sword, you will what? Die by the sword. And with all of the nonsense that's happening in our country and in our culture, that is a lesson, brothers and sisters, we, I think, should learn. That the way of Jesus calls us to live a different way. That the way Jesus enters into what is going to be the last week of his life is the example for us as how we are to live the entirety of ours. Because, brothers and sisters, Jesus is about to destroy death and conquer sin. He is entering Jerusalem in a triumph. His entrance, though it looks like the beginning of the end for him, is actually the start and the beginning of the greatest victory that the world has ever or will ever see again. That God himself became human to unite us back to the God we estranged ourselves from. That Jesus entering to the city, he might not have prisoners and slaves in front of him from areas that he's conquered. But what we've seen in the gospel stories and what we've seen in the miracles of what he's done is that those prisoners that he's driven before them all throughout the gospels are the forces of evil as they scurry away before him. That's why we have those stories, brothers and sisters, of the demons being cast out and the sick being healed because that is Jesus is driving out those things that we've been fighting against for so long. And then, at the very end, the reading tells us he enters into the temple. He looks around, as almost as if to say, everything's ready. And then he leaves, and he goes back outside at night to Bethany. Back outside to Bethany. And so, as we, brothers and sisters, as we come towards the end of Holy Week, we should feel that weight ourselves. We should feel the weight that Jesus himself may be feeling, that we see him display in the garden as he's on his way to his crucifixion. He knows it's going to happen, but it doesn't make it any easier. And he's been telling his disciples, hey, when we get to Jerusalem, this is going to happen to me. It doesn't make it easier. We sometimes have this image of Jesus in our mind that when he was on the cross, he didn't feel any pain, or that it was just a cakewalk for him, or because he was a son of God, it really didn't have any effect on him. No, 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 no. Those are heresies, brothers and sisters, that the church has condemned since the beginning. The heresy of docetism. That Jesus wasn't really human. He only looked to be human. That he was some sort of divine spirit hybrid that kind of floated above the ground who never got hungry, who never raised his voice, who never... (laughs) The Son of God became human so that we could be united back to God. And he does so, brothers and sisters. He's on the donkey as he enters in. He triumphs through love. The cross, if we, if we don't learn anything else this Holy Week or this Easter, the cross is an act of God's love for us. That when we suffer, we're not suffering alone because God became human to suffer with us that God suffered with us. He experienced pain the way we experienced pain. He experienced death in the way that we experienced death. And he did it not because he was angry and he was looking for someone to punish. He did it because he loved us. Because he loved us. And the scriptures tell us that, brothers and sisters. I think it's St. Paul who says, In this, we know God loves us because Christ died for us, the righteous for the unrighteous. And so, to our triumphant yet humble King, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, be all glory together with his Father, who is from everlasting and is all holy good and life-giving spirit. Amen. Hey, this is Pastor Mike Lansman. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast for Zionstone United Church of Christ. You know, we have deep roots here in the local community, and our history is fascinating in that we predate the founding of the United States itself. If you're interested in worship that is traditionally grounded and scripturally faithful, come visit us. We may just be the church for you. You can find us online at zionstoneucc.com, or you can up on facebook zionstone ucc if you have any questions feel free to email me at malandsman at gmail.com again god bless you thanks so much for listening and we hope to have you visit our church